You have 24 minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. This is becoming a 24 Hour Nation refrain. Half of the world's population is female, half of the day is the night. So how can nighttime businesses do a better job of addressing the needs of half of their potential customers? Today, we spend 24 minutes with Alicia Scholler of Responsible Hospitality Institute. We will learn about the decision matrix women use when they are deciding what to do and where to go at night, the single thing that will keep women from returning to your nighttime business, and other actions you might consider if you value female patrons. So, let's discuss how to attract women, no, not like that, to your nighttime business or event. Here's Alicia Scholler. RHI is a nonprofit founded in 1983. We help cities plan and manage safe, vibrant places to socialize. So we have an annual Sociable City Summit where we get bunch of downtown practitioners, nightlife advocates, city officials, planning officials, safety, fire together for about a two to three day conference. And then we also do consultation services for cities that feel like they need more hands-on help. And then we offer kind of educational resources that are free on our website, sociablecity.org. And your role with RHI or the Responsible Hospitality Institute is ultimately easier to say RHI, so we'll use that. But your role with RHI is? So I'm the vice president. So I do a lot of the project management for the company, and I also run our services department. So I get to go on site and really get my hands dirty doing several different kind of daytime, nighttime tours. We do a lot of community engagement. We love doing nightlife tours, you know, staying out till closing with your police, going in and talking to your nightlife venue owners, that sort of thing. So that's what I get to do. And I correct in that the primary client profile for RHI are cities, municipalities? Is that Definitely. Correct? Yes. And so are you I'll, just in the States or North America or? Of US and Canada, but we, we did also do a global project where uh, we got to go to Dublin, Toronto, and also in Cancun. Oh my goodness. Well, that's, that's not, that's not bad duty at all. So, <laughs> sure. A theme of mine as of late has been this idea that half the population is female, half of the day is the night. Why aren't we being more considerate of half of the population for half of the day? So my first questions have to do with equity. Do you know or feel either way that we are doing some kind of an injustice by saying that women's nighttime consumer and social experiences are any different than those of men? Well, I think it's really important to highlight in many of the cities where I've gotten to go on site, I conduct women's focus groups. I've been able to do this in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And absolutely, there is a difference in how women experience the night, especially when they're trying to access social spaces. And to kind of help bring that to light, one of the workshops that exercises that I'll do when it's mixed environment with both men and women present is I'll ask the group, what steps do you take for your safety when you go out at night? And 
I think that the results are really telling for, you know, by and large, the men in the room either don't understand the question or they don't know what to say. And this is based on, you know, previous experiments that I'm applying, uh, social experiments that I'm applying to the social economy lens. But right off the bat, when you ask women this question without any advance notice, they start to raise their hands. They can list off five to 10 ways that they take safety precautions before, during, and even after going out. So I think it's really important to ask if people do receive criticism for having a special focus on women's experiences at night, to ask how many men have experienced taking the long way home to avoid a poorly lit street. How many men have texted a friend to tell them I got home safely? How many men carry their drink into the bathroom so that it won't get spiked? How many men carry their keys between their fingers when they're approaching Mm -hmm. their car in a dark parking lot or thought twice about entering an elevator with a group of men? How many how many men share their rideshare itinerary with a friend? So if that's not part of the reality that men experience at night, then I think it is really still important for us to discuss what women kind of think about before going out. Well, you know, in a previous uh, webinar, we discussed about how spaces are not designed for women at, at any time of the day, but especially at night, we received some criticism from some urban planners and saying, well, no, it's, they should, you shouldn't be calling out a tr- different treatment for women. And I thought, no, because it is different. So everything you've just said reinforces that uh, the process is different for just considering uh, going out and how you interact with the night. And and I think also that if you are designing an environment so that your more vulnerable populations feel safe, then then other populations are going to by default benefit from that. Then men will benefit from an environment that is going to make women feel safer. What kind of decision making process? I mean, do you have data on that? What is there a process by which you describe several things that women consider? What does a woman look at before she goes out and out, whether it's alone or with friends or meeting up with other people? Sure. That's a great question. I used to think it was a pretty linear decision-making tree, but then I realized doing these focus groups and talking to women about their nightlife experiences, it's really more like a matrix of decision-making and you've got to hit the marks in all these different kind of categories. And I think the one that is most surprising, the biggest the biggest factor in whether a woman is going to go out at night is mobility. Is It's a lot easier to get to a social venue, especially if transit is still open until, say, 10 p.m. or whatnot. You can get there, but how will you get home? I think especially, you know, living in the Bay Area, we, you know, just kind of take for granted rideshare services. But I've worked in communities where it's very hard to get an Uber or a Lyft, or you're going to be waiting for a long time. So mobility is one of the biggest factors. If you do have to drive, then what's the parking lot situation going to be like? Is this going to be dark and scary? And then also kind of the safety of the area, figuring out, is this a safe business that I'm going to be going into? Is this a safe neighborhood? Is it going to be dark? Are there going to be people on the street walking around? I mean, that can really influence whether, as you said, a woman is going to go out by herself or is going to only go out if she has a group of friends or kind of a buddy in her car. And then, of course, the the activity, the entertainment, what's being offered, how much does it cost? Is there going to be food there? 
if I don't feel like drinking tonight, will there be some kind of alternatives, alcohol-free beverages available? And then there's a whole area kind of of comfort. Is there a dress code? How dressed up do I need to get to go to this environment? For kind of your colder climate cities in the winter, having a coat check is a big deal. There's So like I said, there's, there's kind of this matrix of categories for women, for comfort, safety, mobility, and in the actual activity. I have a lot of friends that feel most comfortable in, say, a live music venue because and alcohol is served there. But the focal point for the entertainment isn't drinking alcohol. It is watching live music being performed. And yet the alcohol is, you know, an enhancement to the experience for them. But they tend to feel safer because they're with other kind of music fans and, and music lovers. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, women of different ages, different stages in their life, whether whether it's um, age or even like maybe economic status. What variables have you seen there? Sure. So, well, RHI's founder, Jim Peters, came up with these four life stages, um, which I think are, are very clever and easy to remember. They're the singles, mingles, families, and jingles. So for singles, they tend to be younger, not attached, or not in a serious relationship yet. So they've got a lot more freedom. They have a lot more time, but a lot less money. So they tend to be kind of going out to Taco Tuesdays. Their motivation is they want to go out and meet meet people, you know, find a partner, dance, have fun. But their options are going to be kind of on the less expensive range. And then for mingles, these kind of correspond to different ages. But what we found is people can kind of identify with more than one stage too. But for mingles, you know, once you've coupled off, you've found a partner, you have a friend group, you know, your primary motivation is really to connect. So unlike when you were kind of single and preferred that really loud dance club, you're looking for quieter spaces, more like a lounge environment where you can have a nice beverage and and really connect with these important people in your life. And then, of course, once you start a family, your time and your money are more limited. So you're either bringing your kids out with you to dinner because you're tired of cooking or you're getting a babysitter and you're going out on your date night or for a friend's birthday. But at that stage in life, you tend to be going out a lot earlier because kids are hardwired to wake up at 630 in the morning. And then finally, with jingles, they tend to be more your empty nesters, your business travelers. So they've got extra coins jingling in their pocket. They have time and money to go out and do things. But unfortunately, this is definitely the group that feels least represented in downtowns and feel like they have the least options for social spaces where they would feel comfortable. Do you hear from the focus groups that I would like to do more with my family at night? Do you do you hear that rule? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, especially now that I have a young son who's five Uh, now. uh. So, (laughs) yeah, so I can kind of relate to to that demographic now. I mean, I I think that families tend to be drawn more towards kind of an event-oriented kind of social scene for for downtowns and whatnot. But I mean, I think there are certain downtowns that offer really incredible things for children to be a part of. Having opportunities to see live music and bringing a child to that space so they can experience that is a really incredible thing. But depending on their age, they go to bed earlier. I think one of the big trends we were seeing as the biggest competition to going out in general was really home entertainment. And I think that since the pandemic, 
pandemic, depending on kind of what part of the country you live in, I feel like a lot of people are still conditioned to the comforts of home and right. you know, the Netflix and chill nights, the getting Uber Eats. And because women have this kind of higher threshold, that matrix of decision making of whether to go out, I feel like women tend to have higher standards for the entertainment experience that's actually going to lure them out of their home and out of their pajamas from their hit the easy button kind of night. Some of the different trends that that I've been seeing that are successfully getting women to go out are things that are also available, not just late at night, you know, but also during the right. day. Right. Because that's another one of the trends we're seeing across the board for this younger generation, for Gen Z, that they are not going out as late as previous generations are not necessarily staying out till closing time. So I think having some options where you don't have to wait till like midnight when the bar is going to be really exciting is great. So some of the things that I've seen are kind of are called kind of competitive socializing or active socializing. So this is these are things like axe throwing. Which, which um, <laughs> some companies predominantly the membership is female. Believe it or not, it's amazing. It's a really, it's a what's one of my favorite things to do in a city. But and everything's kind of nostalgia activities like roller disco is coming back. Doing indoor mini golf, volleyball on the roof. You know, I mean, bowling. That's that was kind of one of those early. Uh, models for this, where you're doing an activity and then there's a bar that's available. The other big one would be gamification. So vintage arcade bars are just huge right now all over the place, as well as board game cafes, trivia nights, pub quizzes, there's music bingo. People want to play games. They want to be entertained. The The focus groups that I've conducted are multi-generational. So, okay. so, so these are some of the things that have been popping up kind of universally universally for women of different ages, that these are some of the things that are exciting and make them want to go out beyond just a bar with a bar stool and some alcohol on the shelf. Things like beer pong is not a sustainable business model if you want to attract women in the long term. <laughs> and there was some, I think, uh, RHI recently shared some information about alcohol-free bars. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you see on the rise? Totally. I mean, there have definitely been studies showing this generation of college students are drinking less. You know, in terms of the alcohol-free movement, there are sober bars, there's zero-proof bars. And then something, too, that's been interesting that we've been seeing locally is spaces that aren't just trying to recreate a bar setting, but without the alcohol, there's a place in downtown Santa Cruz, California that has a hammock cafe. So you swing in these hammocks and you drink health elixirs and they're open till midnight. And I'm just so glad that they've made it through the pandemic. Okay, so given these insights, what are a couple of nuggets of information that you could encourage nighttime businesses, whether they're bars or restaurants or music venues or, or uh, festivals or cultural facilities that they might want to be mindful of if they really want to appeal to a female patron? Well, I have, gosh, a couple of thoughts on that one. Um, right. I would love to add on one additional um, kind of entertainment programming that okay. I've heard women discuss quite a bit as another thing to lure them out to go out at night. And it's the difference between social dancing versus dancing at a club. 
when women talk about social dancing, they're usually talking about the dance styles associated with like salsa, bachata, swing, or line dancing, kind of depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, there's a there's a huge, you know, salsa scene in the Bay Area here. And what I've heard from a lot of women is that they feel a lot safer participating in social dancing than they do going to a club and dancing in that environment. And the difference is, I mean, a lot of traditional nightclubs do actually host social dancing. They'll have lessons, for instance, before they open it up to salsa night. But what the women have um, who've participated in these focus groups have said is that they feel like there's kind of a clearer rule of en- rules of engagement as well as protocols for kind of formally asking someone to dance. And it's really focused on the technique and the style and learning um, and professionalizing, you know, your your dance style and your moves versus being in a more club and environment where things are there. There aren't any kind of rules of engagement, per se. Out of all of this, though, what would you suggest that some business owners do that they're not currently doing now? Two or three things that they might do that would uh, appeal to the new thinking of socializing among women. Oh, goodness. Well, I think that some of the key things are having areas where women can sit because it is still the fashion trend to wear high shoes and women are going to need to take a break, especially if you have a dance environment. So making sure there's adequate seating, there's a, you know, it's it. What has been really interesting is when I've asked women what makes them feel safe in a social environment, the factors that they come up with actually align with best practices for general venue operation. It's things like making sure that your establishment isn't so crowded that you can't access, that you can't not access the bar. It's um, having temperature controls, being able to see uniformed security and that sort of thing. And then... Of course, there's restrooms. And you would think that this would be pretty obvious, but I can tell you, I've been in many, many a bathroom um, all over the country and they still need improvement. You know, to explain, it can really make or break a woman's experience. I have firsthand heard women say, I will never go back there because the bathroom was so bad. Someone at a recent focus group that I did in a city actually made a really interesting connection of cleanliness. She said, if the restroom isn't clean, how do I know you clean your glassware? If your Mm. bathroom is not clean, I won't order a mixed drink in your establishment. So there's potential loss of profit from that. And inclusivity, do your patrons feel safe using the bathroom um, that they're not going to be attacked by a predator in there because it's so dark? Can they use a bathroom aligned with their gender identity, depending on the, the which state you live in. But in terms of what women are looking for in the restroom, this is pretty funny because it started out as a fairly small kind of list and in each city I go to, it gets larger. So, I mean, the basics, you know, I mean, it's, you know, clean and well-stocked. You've got a working lock on each stall. You have soap, you have little disposal bins. I've heard women say though, that they've been in bathrooms that are really, really thoughtful, having purse hooks, having shelves. They want a door that opens out, having art displays, seating. This is kind of a refuge for women to be able to take a break, especially if it's exciting atmosphere outside. I've seen restrooms with amazing lighting for selfies with the venue's hashtag 
back backwards in the mirror. So they know that women are going to be taking selfies of themselves. The height of the incredible bathroom are things like having a staff monitor, because then you really know that this is a safe environment. I am talking with Alicia Scholler. She's vice president of the Responsible Hospitality Institute, RHI, as it's called. You can learn more about RHI at uh, sociablecity.org on Facebook and Twitter. They are also at Sociable City and then the Responsible Hospitality Institute is on LinkedIn. I would like to reinforce earlier, Alicia referenced the Sociable City Summit. It's going to be held in New York City this year, April 21st, 23rd. Do you have any information about the presence of children in in a space at night and what that means to comfort and safety and No hard data, but I can tell you anecdotally, for instance, when I was in Cancun, Mexico, what I was told actually by a man was, I know this street is safe when I see women and children there. Just from what I've seen being watching closing time, watching how districts kind of change from day to evening to night is that there's really this social norming effect when you have people of different ages from the young to the old or more seasoned, I should say, you know, and actually something something kind of unusual that I've seen pop up lately in some of the communities in the Bay Area is I'm actually starting to see bars that have play areas for children. And I'd never seen this before where they where it's inviting people to bring their families into this kind of space where they have a whole play area of toys and a Thomas the Train set. And that's something that I had never seen before until recently. And honestly, I think that they were kind of controversial when I talked to people about this, because some people feel really strongly that bars are not a space that children should be in. I, I think it begs the question of do we, when do we start normalizing, socializing with alcohol in public and private settings around children? And are you going to be better behaved because there are kids around? And kind of what's the difference between drinking beer out of a plastic cup at an event with kids versus drinking beer out of a pint glass in a restaurant where there are kids versus in an area that is more of a bar setting? So it's a really interesting development. And I'm really intrigued to see kind of where that goes. The night is kind of a scary place for children versus in Europe, the plazas and the squares you see. I used to see very young children with their grandparents watching magic shows till 10 p.m. at night in Spain and Parque de las Palapas in Cancun, Mexico. You go and it's it's all oriented to the night. There are rides. There are Hot Wheels cars that the kids ride around in. And it's it's a really beautiful experience to see that. If you own a restaurant or bar, go check the women's restroom right now. This has been Season 2, Episode 4 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit us at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. <laughs>